You may be seated. And it is good to see you. I say that every week, but it's really good to see you now because I've been gone a couple weeks. And uh, we started a new series last week called Onward after our more intense series of, uh, and thank you for coming for that, uh, Love Thy Body. <clears throat> um, now we're going to talk about, well, so how do we live in this crazy world that we just kind of looked at? Uh, and, and really what it is is sort of be going onward with Jesus to the events of Easter, the cross and, and beyond and the resurrection and how does that work? And Christian did a great job of starting that off uh, in the first chapter that we're going to look at in John uh, 13. In fact, we're going to take the second second half of that today, and uh, really did a really great job. And I know several of you have told me that, and I, I appreciate what he did there because it launched exactly what we need to say and, and where we need to go. And, um, but really, the question we're trying to answer is, so, okay, so we're living in a, a secular, increasingly progressive uh, uh, world that is disconnecting from God. How do you live in that as a Christian? How does that work? And what's interesting is, is the last days of Jesus before his uh, trial and crucifixion, he gives us detailed information on that. And it struck me, I was thinking about, like, you know, how to think about this world that we're living in. When I was walking through uh, the Chicago airport, the O'Hare airport, uh, I went there, I went to Chicago for meetings the last, twice in the last three weeks, okay? I wasn't away looking at other churches or hanging out with, uh, no, I like you guys, I want to be, I love you guys, I want to be here, so... Um, but I'm walking through the uh, O'Hare airport, and if you've ever been to O'Hare airport, it's the busiest airport in the world, I think, certainly in the U.S., and what, what, um, what the, uh, Chicago Airport, or, or sorry, O'Hare Airport, because there's another one there. Uh, O'Hare Airport is like, uh, if you've ever been there, it's streams of humanity just kind of flowing along in every corridor at, at all of the four terminals that are there. And, uh, you know, what you got to do in there is you kind of got to watch for your move to jump in and you jump in the river and then you just kind of go. And then you got to see where you got to, you know, end up, you know, uh, or where you're going to end up when you want to get off and you get ready over to the edge and jump off there. Cause it's like, you know, I don't want to go on the, I don't want to go on the moving sidewalk. I don't want to go on, on the moving sidewalk, that kind of thing. So I was, I was, I was swimming through the stream of humanity and I noticed something this week that I've walked by probably tens of times and never noticed it. But this shows you that your worldview can change because four years ago, my worldview changed. I became a grandparent. And I'm convinced that's why I noticed this because what they have there is they have this giant, and I mean full-size brontosaurus skeleton, dinosaur skeleton. And its head goes all the way to the ceiling and its tail goes up over security. I don't know what the meaning of that is. Like if they're shutting down security and locking down, slams down, I don't know. But it's just this huge dinosaur. And I saw it up ahead and I go, oh, Owen, my four-year-old grandson, loves that. So I, I paddled over the edge of the river and jumped off and, and took a video of it. And as I'm standing there, I, I had a couple of thoughts. First thought was, you know, I've just done one of these DNA tests because my oldest son wants to kind of do the ancestry thing. So he bought this test for me, so I did it. And... Um, and what's interesting is, is there's one gene or one half a gene or one marker somewhere, something that says, I've got Neanderthal blood in me. <laughs> now that explains a lot. Really, it does. It, it explains a lot about my marriage and how I've treated that. I mean, all kinds of stuff. Uh, if, you know, if you believe that whole thing about 65,000 years ago, one of my ancestors was in, in Africa and then in Neanderthal. I, I don't know. But but here's, here's the interesting thing. I was standing there and going, huh, I wonder if this guy like knew some of my relatives, right? And then I was looking out at the sea of humanity 
running by, and I thought, wow, what an irony this is. Because I was thinking of the Lost World movies and the Jurassic Park movies. This guy represents a lost world, but we're still in a lost world. That world of violence and outrage and, you know, where are we going to go and how are we going to get out of this? We've still got that world, right? I mean, that, that's kind of the way it is. We live in a lost world. And, and really what we're talking about is how do you get onward and how do you move forward, regardless of what the future is like, how do you go forward in lost world as a Christian? You know, we're supposed to be filled with hope and peace and love and joy and resilience and all that kind of stuff. How does that work? Now, here's the thing. We kind of got to take a look at this, first of all, as we launch into this, because nobody thinks of themselves as lost. Have you noticed that? It's a really bad technique for sharing your faith to come to a person and the first thing you say is, I know you're lost. They, they don't know they're lost. Okay? Nobody thinks of themselves as lost. In fact, in order to even think about lost world, you have to dial it way back to the history and, the, and the, the, you know, what has happened before this that has gotten us to this place. And secondly, before a person really uh, comes to follow Jesus, you, you come to a point of saying, oh, this is what I've done. This is how I've lived that's gotten me to this place. That's what opens you up to the possibility of a worldview shift and a change of heart that the Holy Spirit does. That's really where it is. So let's go back and look at what happened that caused lost world to come into existence. Because the nature of lost world goes all the way back to Genesis 1 to 3, specifically chapter 3, when the world that God created it as he created it was lost. I mean, think of, of what was lost there, and let's compare how up to date this list might still be. Here it is. Uh, the nature of lost world is that innocence was lost. We lost our innocence back in Eden when, when we left, when sin entered uh, humanity and sin entered the world. Uh, we lost our, 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 our innocence. Pain free ecosystem, that was lost because we still certainly have that in existence. A healthy environment was lost. We know about that. I mean, we're health conscious like crazy because we know that there's so many things that can get you, you know? Coffee can get you. No, it can't. Yes, it can. No, it can't. Yes, it can. I mean, that kind of thing. Uh, or uh, friendship with God was lost. Remember they got to walk with God each afternoon in the garden? That was lost. God had to be the one to restore that. Paradise, take all the things, paradise was lost. There's actually a book about that, right? And... <clears throat> That's what was lost. And that look, you look at that list and you go, that's kind of up to date because that's still the lost world that we live in. And the reason, as I already kind of put in here, that we are living in a lost world is because a word that we don't like to say, in fact, some people are trying to say, you know, don't use that word because that's hate speech. The only problem with that is, is that's just another way of saying, I don't want to think about it and you shouldn't make me. But here's the reality, the reason we're in a lost world and what caused it to be lost is sin. Sin, Any, the, 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 the greatest sin of all of saying, God, I know better than you, I don't need you in my life. I want the knowledge, I wanna be God in my life. That's how the serpent did the whole thing uh, at, the, at the tree. He said, you know, just eat the fruit because God just doesn't want you to be like him. Oh, I wanna be like I, and so, you know, that's how sin entered the world. And, and there's another thing that we don't talk about very much that, you know, we're seeing the effects because sin is we're in the world. We're seeing the effects of something else we don't like to talk about. And we don't even very often talk about this in the American church or the Western church at all anymore. 
And yet the Old Testament talks about it. Jesus talks about it. And Paul spends three chapters in the first chapters of Romans detailing it out and talking about this. And what I'm talking about is the wrath of God against sin. Not against people, per se, but against sin. And that's part of the problem. The reason people don't want to think about the wrath of God is, well, if there is a God, he should just do whatever I want at my beck and call. There shouldn't be any adversity if there's really a God. There shouldn't be any hardship. There shouldn't be, and, and what, what that is, is a sort of silly, petty view of God. And there shouldn't be a God like that. It's, it's a petty view. It's a, it's a silly view of God's wrath. Because you see, God's wrath against sin isn't like, you know, if you're not a good person, you'll never find a parking place the rest of your life. God's wrath isn't, if, you know, God's going to make it, if you don't be good, he's going to make it so the Patriots win the Super Bowl every year, you know? It's not like that. And it's not about even the more serious stuff about the disease and the hurt and the waywardness of children that breaks parents' heart and the, the, the waywardness of parents that breaks their children's heart. I mean, it's not any about that. All of those things that are a part of lost world, of this fallen world. It's not connected that way because it's that shallow view. But the, the point is that God's wrath points to the fact that it really is a jungle out there. And the reasons it's a jungle out there is because God, because sin is into the world and God cannot allow um, sin to be in his presence. He cannot allow that to happen or he wouldn't be God. And so therefore, he has to do something about the sin in those he loves, his human creation. That's why he sent his son. You see, what God does with his wrath is he doesn't have to pour out the full measure of his wrath on sin on this earth. Because if he did, we wouldn't be here having this conversation. All he has to do is just take his hand away. And he is so loving, he hasn't even taken his hand away completely from what sin can do to this world. But when he takes his hand away from people who, or, or from societies and cultures that say, we don't need you, we don't want you, it becomes a jungle out there because God doesn't have to pour out his wrath because sin in itself does things to human beings that makes them do it to each other. He ha- it basically says, okay, have it your way. That's the nature of hell. God says, okay, you don't want me? I'm pulling my hand out. I'm not going to be with you. He does that in the Old Testament with Israel when they say, leave us alone, God. We want to follow these other gods. And he said, okay, that's what you want? I'm disconnecting myself from you. Now, he says over and over again, the whole purpose of doing that is not just to let them flounder. The whole purpose is them for them to see that they need him and to come back to him. It's an evangelistic thing, really. But that's the reality of the world we live in, isn't it? In terms of navigating this and living in this and going forward with Jesus and this and this, I had another experience while I was gone. On the way home, I did something I almost never do. I watched a Christian movie. I know that's weird for a pastor to say. I just don't. I See, I live, I'm old enough, just a little bit old enough to remember when Christian movies were really shallow and dumber than the regular movies, Okay. So that's still in me. I know they've gotten better. But I just, I'd never gotten around to watching this, even though people had told me. It's, it's called Paul, the Apostle of the Christ. And, you know, it's kind of my, I'm a history geek, so I, it, it really portrays in a powerful, moving way what was going on in the first century church and the Christians when Paul was writing his letters and Luke was writing down Paul's thoughts and he wrote the book of Acts and all that kind of stuff. Really powerful. In fact, it's so moving. I got choked up right there on, in seat 29A on the, on the plane. I'm thinking, God, come on, not right here, okay? But it was powerful 
And, and what was particularly powerful for me was at the end of the movie, and I'm not giving anything away if you've read the Bible, but <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> but as, as, the, as Paul is being uh, executed, they're, they're flashing back to Christians who are leaving Rome. And, and the way they do this, it's just so powerful. It's not like, oh, we're leaving Rome. It's like there's this peace, there's this sense of hope, there's a sense of joy and resilience to move forward with Jesus, whatever's ahead. And that's why they're leaving Rome, not to get away from stuff, but to get on with sharing the gospel with other places. Isn't that interesting? And you know what? I've been thinking, this is why we did Love Thy Body, quite frankly, just kind of pull back the curtain, and why we're doing this series. It's because I think my job in the future is to prepare you for whatever the future is. My job is to prepare us with the gospel of what Jesus is teaching us and wants us to know so that we can move onward with him together. That's my job. If you want to know what the vision of the church is, I just told you. To have that peace-filled, hope-filled, um, joy-filled resilience that goes with being a follower, a walker with Jesus Christ, regardless of what the world is doing. Now, say, and what's interesting is, is that's exactly what I think Jesus is doing and what John writes down in chapters 13 to 19 of the book of John. John, his, his youngest apostle, in fact, by the time he writes this, we'll see this in a minute, he's still, he's the last living apostle and so forth and so on. Um, and he um, puts in here uh, something that Jesus said. This is a word that Jesus gives us that maybe you uh, didn't know came from Jesus. Maybe you thought somebody made it up or some organization made it up or some early church father made it up. No, this comes from Jesus. And, and, and John puts it into a specific phrase, okay? And the, fra the phrase is this, and, he, and John's referring to himself now. He says, the disciple whom Jesus loved... He says that a lot. And, and we as 21st century people, we go, are you saying that he loved you more than everybody else? And his answer is no, he's not. He's not saying that. that that's the word though that he gives us, disciple. And, and what disciple means is it means learner or follower, or I would say because of the way Jesus uses it, it means, come on, walk with me. Because we're going to see this in these chapters, in this series. Jesus is continually saying, walk with me, let's go. And I'm going to teach you as we go. We're going to do life together. That's what he says a disciple is. Even today, by the time we get to the end of the series, I hope you see, even today, that's what Jesus is saying. Let's do life together. Let me show you what I mean about this joy and peace and hope, and that it's possible for you in this place. But what I think John is doing when he says, the disciple whom Jesus loved, is he's saying, look, <clears throat> I'm not so great. Because John, you know, starts off as this, this fiery young fisherman guy. He's younger than the, all the other uh, uh, disciples. Nobody listens to him because he's too young, right? So millennials, patron saints, at which point do they have to listen to you? I don't know. But John hadn't hit it yet when he started with Jesus. And so Jesus, Jesus um, it calls him, even though he's this fiery young fisherman. And I think what John is saying is, I can't believe Jesus loved me enough to let me be his follower when he calls himself the disciple whom Jesus loved. It just still blows my mind that I have the privilege of walking with Jesus, which is instruction for all of us, isn't it? In fact, to get into this and to really understand this, let's start with, you know, in terms of how do you walk, move onward uh, in lo through lost world? 
as a follower of Jesus. Let's start where Christian left off in chapter 13. We're going to start with verse 18. Jesus has washed the disciples' feet, and then he just said, hey, do this to each other. And he doesn't mean specifically wash the feet like, okay, you're done after you wash the feet. No, he says, serve each other is basically what he's saying. Um, and if, if I'm the master and I do it, you should do it too and so forth. But look what he says in, in beginning at verse 18 to follow up on that. He says, I'm not referring to all of you. In other words, he knew that he had a betrayer, as you're going to see in just a second. I am not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill uh, this passage of Scripture. So he's saying, I'm, prophetic. I'm being prophetic here. He who shared my bread has turned against me, which is exactly what happens in just a few minutes. He says, I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. That explains the whole rest of the book of John. And it explains the whole nature of the Christian life living in a lost world. I'm telling you this now. See, Jesus has just told them three times that he's going to die, and, and they've given them the hint that it's going to be on a cross. This was obscene information to them. Not just the fact that Jesus would leave them, but that he would somehow die. He was the Messiah for crying out loud. How do Messiahs die? And they'd seen crucifixions. They'd walked by him on the road. They'd smelled them. This was horrible, obscene information. How could anything good come out of this? And so Jesus says, I'm doing this so I can prepare you for what's coming because I want you to see something that you'd never thought you'd see before in a situation like this. I want to build up your trust. You know how you, um, maybe you have a parent or a mentor or a grandparent who you've been close to and you know, they've told you things and you say, that can't be true. That could never happen. And you get like older and you go, they were right, right? And you start to trust them more. That's kind of what Jesus is doing with his disciples and with us uh, all these years later. He's saying, yeah, I, I, I get that. And notice how he does it. Notice what he's trying to get to. He says, I'm doing this, last five words of, of verse 19. I'm doing this so that you will believe something and that you will believe that I am who I am. That's not just Jesus saying, you know, that you'll believe that I'm Jesus. He's saying that you will believe that I am God, the one holy true God. You know why? Because that phrase, I am who I am, that means God's most holy name that was given to Moses and at the burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. That's the translation of the name Yahweh. Jesus, if the Pharisees had heard these, the Jewish leaders, that would have been enough to put them on the cross right there. Because for them it was blasphemy. But he's saying, I am who I am, and that's what I'm hoping you will come from this, that you will come to that point where you will be, uh, not know that that's who I am, that I am that God. So anybody who ever tells you Jesus didn't claim to be God, na 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 na, this is exactly who he claimed to be. You see, if you look at this, Paul, or, or sorry, John, who's writing this, it's years, it's decades later, maybe 60, 65 years later. And, and, and in his cultural moment, it was very difficult to be a Christian. It was truly a lost world. It was a jungle out there. And how are you supposed to be a Christian in these days? Paul, or John is trying to prepare people to be followers of Jesus and to rise above that sort of thing. 
Think, think about this. In, in this moment, when, when John is writing this, he's in his 80s, maybe even like 85. All the other disciples are dead. The young leaders are in prison. He's the only guy that's out there and about, but he's in exile. He's not in Ephesus anymore, or in uh, Jerusalem anymore. He's in Ephesus. He might even be in exile on an island. We're not sure if he's gotten there yet at this point. But, but he's, he's not in Jerusalem anymore. He's not home anymore. He's not in Kansas anymore. He's out there in places he never thought he would be. And he's this old man and all eyes are on him because all the other ones, as I said, are gone. They're all dead. Uh, and, and, they're all, and all the other ones are in prison. So all eyes are on John. John, what do we do? Because there was a Caesar named Domitian. And Domitian was still sending Christians at the circus before the wild animals, men, women, and children. Before the wild animals in the Roman circus in Rome or in the Colosseum, he's still burning them for lights. You know, he was still doing the nasty things that Nero did. And he was, he was coming after Christianity and coming after Jews too, Judaism. And, and, but Domitian knew John's name. He had, he had, a tar, had placed a target on John. So here he is at 85, and he's got to write this. this he says, you know what? I, I'm the only one left. I better write what I saw. I better put it down because it's a bad time to be a Christian in John's day. And the reason it's a bad time to be a, a Christian is because people looked at you, and if you believed what Christians believe, if you believed what Jewish people believed, then you must be part of the problem with our world. Your beliefs are what's screwing everything up. Does that sound a little up to date? That's exactly what John is going through and why John is writing. And John sees this and he's trying to tell his brothers and sisters in Christ, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to be uh, uh, worried about this because the reality is Jesus has promised to walk with us into this future, onward into this future. You see, what, Jesus, what, what John is trying to say is what Jesus said was true. What Jesus said is, is real. And, and not only that, after living for 85 years, I can tell you, and, and, and at least 60 of those, 65 of those, without Jesus, you know, here in the same way that he was here before, Living the new normal, I can tell you it's possible. It can be done. And not only that, if we do this, God will bring some things into reality. He has promised to bring some things into reality in our lives that will make it all worthwhile that we did it. And he's saying, look, if Jesus can do this with me, the person who had, you know, temper issues, the person who had sort of this me-first attitude, and yet he looked at me and said things like, I want you to take care of my mother, Mary, because that's what Jesus did from the cross. John is saying, then he can do it with anybody. In fact, what happens next is, you, you kind of know the story, Jesus uh, basically has this little sort of secretive, in front of everybody, conversation and, and uh, confrontation with Judas and basically tells Judas to, whatever you got to do, you go do right now, because Jesus knew that he was, had betrayed him already. So Judas flees the room and everybody's going, who's Jesus talking about? Are you, me? Or me? Where, did you, where did Judas go? What, what in the world? We, nobody liked Judas anyway, but where is he, right? 
And, and so they don't need, they know that something is just, you know, heavy. They don't know what's going to happen. They don't know what's up. And, 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 and yet Jesus turns the conversation back to what he's trying to do to prepare them, as he said, for what's coming next. Look down at verse 31. It says, when, Jesus, when he had gone, that is Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in him and will glorify him at once. Now, notice how many glorifieds there are. There's a bunch of glorifieds. In fact, some of them are in the past tense, and it hasn't happened yet. But that's because in the Greek language, there's a tense that we don't have a, a comparable uh, English to that says it's in the, you can, you can, it's so certain that it's going to happen that you can state it as if it were in the past before it actually happens. And that's the tense that these glorifieds, the past tense glorifieds are, are, are all about. It's so certain that it'll happen that, that you can be confident that this is going to be true. That there's gonna be a lot of glory here this isn't all down and bummer. It's going to be hard, but just understand that, that uh, there's, there's something greater here that I'm about to give you, that there's, there's an outcome here that you can't imagine. And look how he says this. This is, this is beautiful, how, how gracious and tender this is, what Jesus says. Verse 33, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give you. Okay, now let's just pause right there, okay? This is a familiar verse alert. And the reason why I'm pausing and making an alert is because what do we do with stuff that we've heard before? It's human nature. I do it too. Well, our tendency is just to pass over and say, yeah, heard that before. What else you got? Right? And if you've read the Bible enough, or you've heard people talk enough, or you've been in church long enough, you've heard this over and over and over again. But I don't think we've even begun in our day and age as Christian people and as the church to plumb the depth of what Jesus is about to say. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you, so you must love one another. Now, we usually focus on the love part which is, is fine to a point. I mean, that's a good thing. But that's not even part, that's not even the whole of what Jesus is trying to say here. Remember when, when Jesus um, was faced with a lawyer, a, a Jewish lawyer, a lawyer of the Jewish law, uh, and he was trying to trick Jesus. This happened a couple times where they come to him and say, you know, hey, what, uh, what's the greatest commandment? Because they all knew what the greatest commandment is, Deuteronomy 6. And Jesus says it. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then Larry goes, okay, yeah, good, you got it. And then Jesus does something he doesn't ask for. And the second is like it. Love your neighbor as you love yourself. And I don't have, you know, I don't have video of this, so I'm not sure. But I'm pretty sure it was in an attitude like, are you doing that? You know? And then he takes the two and he combines them and he puts it together and he says, if you do these two commands, then you are fulfilling all the prophets and all the scripture. <laughs> but here what he does is he narrows it all down to love one another as I have loved you. He, he, he brings it all down to that and says, you do that and you're going to be fine. 
You do that, and I'm going to do some amazing, incredible things through you that you didn't think would, couldn't happen. I'm not saying you won't face adversity. You will. I mean, that's just like a given of life in lost world. It really is a jungle out there. But here's the reality. If you do that, then you will have fulfilled all of this because loving one another is, in fact, loving God because that's the commandment I'm giving you. Everything else will come together if you do that. Now, we look at that, though, and we look at that phrase where it says, okay, love one another, got that. As I have loved you. <sighs> like you, Jesus? Yeah. I don't think I can do that. <laughs> and you know what? That's the point. In a few verses, we're going to find out that Peter proves to us, just like us, we can't. But Jesus is going to show us how that can all work out. So hold that thought. We can't. It's, that's not possible for us. Um, but, Jesus, it, 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 or, but, but Jesus is trying to help us understand and trying to help us realize that that's not what he's asking us to do. Remember, he's already told us that Almighty Yahweh, I am that I am, will be with us. It's him if we walk through that. But look how he finishes it off. Because there's a promise that we often jump over. We often miss out. That Jesus says there is a payoff on this, uh, regardless of what the future holds. Love one another as I have loved you. Verse 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. Why? Because he says, I'll be in you and make it possible. My spirit will be in you to make it possible for you to love like me. And here's the crazy thing. That's not normal for people in lost world. That's not normal to be able to love like that, to get yourself out of the way, to trust God, to, to fulfill the needs of yourself. It's not normal to take your choices in, in autonomous morality world like we talked about a few weeks ago. It's not normal to say, I'm not going to keep my choices for myself. I'm going to let you tell me what my choices should be, Jesus. That's not normal. In fact, here's the news, a newsflash. When people think you're weird for being a Christian, they're supposed to think you're weird. I mean, you, it's, it's the reality of who can do that? And, and, and yeah, there may be some, you know, smack in the beginning, but it's like, wow. It, Jesus just said it. He said, then the world will know that you're my disciples. Wow, that... Maybe there is a God, because I can't figure out how those people, they're so abnormal, how that could possibly be possible. And if we're truly loving as Jesus loved, who can be against that? You see, Jesus is saying, that's what's possible for you, because I am that I am is with you. If you live that way, then you will be different. And what will be different is you will have a hope-filled, peace-filled, joy-filled, all of which he covers in the next chapters. Resilient life that can not be knocked down and you will not stop the church. You will not stop your Christian faith. It cannot be stopped because I'm above all that, Jesus is saying. And see, that's, that's where he's going with this. And before we bring this all together, I want to show you something that's very encouraging and very uplifting because good old Peter shows up. Peter, who is, I think, a very intelligent person, 
But he proves over and over again that you can follow Jesus and God can use you in an incredible way and you still not be perfect, okay? Because Peter has been, Jesus has just said this beautiful thing and the other disciples are going, okay, he's going away, but he just gave us this promise and this gift, whoa. And and at that point, Peter pipes up and he says, hey, where are you going? (laughs) They, they, They said, Lord, where are you going? You know, because he's still thinking about Jesus saying, I'm going away. He doesn't even hear anything he just said. And Jesus replied, where I'm going, you cannot come, but you will follow me later. (laughs) He's trying to get back on track. And Jesus asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Man, I love Peter. Then Jesus answered, "Will will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. Oh, now again, let's go back to John. Peter, Peter and John are pretty tight. Even though John was a lot younger, they're pretty tight. They're the first ones to the tr- tomb after the women actually were the first ones to the tomb, but they actually ran to check it out because they didn't believe the women. But they went together. And, and, and so John's writing this decades later. Is he throwing Peter under the bus here? Is he showing how dumb Peter is? I don't think so. I think John is showing up that my brother Peter, my friend Peter, has shown us the reality that it's possible because, you know, years later, he's, he's not maneuvering to show himself to be the greatest guy because if you look at John's history, he steps onto history with this big chip on his shoulders, this big attitude about things that the Romans, you know, were treating his people horribly and he wanted to fight them and he thought maybe Jesus would do the knockout punch and, and he, uh, you know, trying to, like he and James's brother, the sons of Zebedee, are gonna call down this fire from heaven and, and uh, he's just not a very nice guy as a young guy. But as the years go on and as he walks with Jesus, even just these first three years, he becomes what becomes known as the apostle of love. I think it braces back to this moment. The apostle of love. He talks about love more than anyone else in the New Testament, especially if you add 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And in the Gospel of John, he's just constantly talking about love. This guy who had the bad temper and was such an angry person, he becomes such a person of love that Jesus says, hey, take care of my mom, would you, as he's dying on the cross. Isn't that something? I mean, and I think what John is saying here is he's saying, don't be too hard on my brother Peter because I'm exactly like him. I, I, left Pete, I, I left Jesus even before the crucifixion because I wanted to do all this other stuff and I was kind of mad at Jesus for a while because he wouldn't, you know, stomp out the Romans and that sort of thing. You see, what John is proving here is that a holier-than-thou attitude is not the way to make it through lost world. A lowlier-than-thou attitude is the way and let God raise you up. Let God lift you up. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to tell us by reporting it the way he does and reporting what exactly happened besides the fact that he was there listening to it and he simply wants to tell us exactly what happened. And the reality is little did, little did John know as he's writing this all these decades later in his 80s, He's writing it down. He didn't know that this would become some of the most highly read history in the history of the world. He didn't know that it would become some of the greatest literature read in the world. People look at the book of John and realize the, 
the amazing way that he puts it together and the story and it, it's amazing literature in itself. He had no idea that he was changing the way people would think about God. He had no idea really that he was changing <clears throat> the way Gentiles would come to God. He had no idea that what he was writing would one day undermine the evil of the Roman Empire to the point that the whole empire came crashing down. Because scholars will tell you today that it was the love of Christians for one another and the love of Christians who were dying in the plagues that caused the whole Roman religious structure to fall apart and ultimately the Roman Empire itself as we knew it in those days. That's what John had happened. And, 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 and ask yourself the question, what are the odds of that happening? What are the odds that you're sitting there in the first century and you're writing about a man who does miracles and a man who dies on a cross and then he rises from the dead and oh, by the way, he reappears to people and then he reappears to people in dreams and visions and so forth and so on. What are the chances of that making it out of the first century as if it were real? I mean, we've got, apparently the Caesars wrote tomes about how great they were because they were supposed to be gods, but they put them in vaults and in libraries and we still can't find them. Nobody cares, but we're still reading this. What are the odds that that would happen in the midst of lost world, in the midst of all the adversity, that that's possible? And don't miss this. The tragedy of all that is that most people miss the possibility that God, even in a time of adversity or a life when you're facing adversity, that he can turn the tables on it like that and use it for some things that you never dreamed were possible. You have no idea that that is what is possible in the hands of I am who I am. As we bring all this together, I'm going to just tell you about a phone call I got when I was writing this message. At the end of the week, <clears throat> it was a phone call from somebody in our church, and it was so, such a beautiful example of exactly what I think Jesus is saying here. Through, you know, walking through lost world and the hope and the, the peace and the actually good coming out of bad, all that kind of stuff. It's a perfect example of that. And I asked if I could share it with you in general terms because I'm not going to give you the specifics. But it's somebody in our church and they, it's a couple that have gone, had gone through a really difficult and are still in some way, shape or form going through some very uh, uh, difficult uh, season. And in fact, it, it's sort of a jarring thing. It's not the death of a loved one, which we all know is, is extremely jarring. Uh, but but it, this is something that's almost like that. But it's something that m many of us have experienced. Uh, I know I have experienced, Sharon and I have experienced this to some degree. But it was so uh, jarring <clears throat> and, and disorienting that, you know, just didn't know what to do. So they prayed, you know, God, how are we going to deal with this? How can we even move forward with this? And he, he showed them how it could be taken care of, at least in an earthly fashion. And, and, but it was going to take some real sacrifice and trust on their part, Really? And so they, they followed into that and they did that. And the, at, at the end of this, and, and again, you know, the, they realized, after they'd made that choice, they realized that out of this situation, there were some resources that had been produced that they could give a, a portion of this to ministry or someone else or, or somebody else who's in, in dire need and so forth and help. And uh, they called me to find out if I knew anything about that. I mean, talk about an amazing story of hardship and adversity turned to good. I got to tell you, I love being a part of this church because it's filled with people like that. And it just, it just 
blows my mind that that's the case. And here's the reality of that moment. They still haven't seen it yet. And if you're in a situation like that, you haven't seen it yet. But what the promise of Jesus here is, is the whole world will know. The whole world will one day know. The whole world will be touched. God will use this to, all, to touch all of your world if you just simply follow him in that. When you're living in lost world and the messages are always come, don't talk about your faith because that's immoral. And you see, they've redefined the word moral. But anyway, they've honored that. You know, don't bother being moral. Don't bother being ethical. Don't bother being obedient. It doesn't matter. There's no point to that. It's just stuck. But you'll never know if you don't follow him into it. That's the tragedy. Most people never follow him into it. And the reality is you and I can't turn lost world around. We can't. That's true, isn't it? I can't. You can't. But here's another thing that's true. He can. And what Jesus is introducing here is a third thing that changes everything that people wouldn't normally think about. And it's this, he can through me. You mean my little old life, my little old struggles, my little old adversity? That's right. Just like he did with John, who didn't know, you know, what was going to go on. I mean, he was just a fisherman and not a very good one at that. And Jesus calls him, and he winds up being the apostle of love that is taking care of uh, Jesus' mother. And then the whole world, the whole Christian world at least, is depending on him to tell them what Jesus said one more time. And you know what that's like. You maybe have people depending on you, right? Is it possible, you know, you worry about the future for your kids or whatever. Jesus says, don't worry. I've got that, but you have to trust me in it. You walk with me in it. You love one another as I've loved you by the power I give you to love one another. And then the whole world's going to know. Things will be come together. Things will be brought together things will be made new, and you'll see it happening, regardless of what the future holds. Ultimately, that's the end of the story. So in the regard to that, I want to just give you a prayer, a two-part prayer, that I'd like to suggest that you, um, uh, that you pray up to Easter, okay? Morning and evening. And you can take a picture of these or write them down. I would have put them on a magnet, but I guess we're not a refrigerator magnet church. I don't know. But you, you just write these down so you can remember, okay? The first one is this. As you, as you get up in the morning, you say those words that we just said, I can't, you can. And you might want to say it quietly because there might be people still sleeping. I can't, you can't. So just say, say, let's just practice. I can't, you can. That's about as quiet as you should say it right there, okay? So, so you say, I can't, you can't. And um, you can say it as many times as you want, but it's just sort of a way of reorientating your view for that day. I can't, you can't. I say this every Sunday morning, by the way. <laughs> I can't, you can. And secondly, when you go to bed at night, there's this, there's this thing that John is getting into that we're going to see in, in uh, 13 through 19. There is a mystery to this whole thing. There's a mystery that, you know, instead of trying to figure out the mystery, just understand that it becomes a reality. That's what Jesus wants us to do. I, I can do things that you, you will never understand. They're mysterious, but the reality, the reality is it produces a reality of good and the good news in the gospel in your life, of peace, hope, joy, and resilience in your life. 
So the evening prayer goes like this. Teach me the mystery of Christ in me, the mystery that he's actually living in me. Tonight as I sleep, tomorrow as I get up, when I face that meeting at work tomorrow, when I take that test at school, when I have to see so-and-so at school, when I walk into Starbucks and see that moment one more time, teach me the mystery of Christ in me. Those are the two prayers. I can't, you can. Teach me the mystery of Christ in me. Now, just to bring this all together before we close, I, I picked up a book while I was gone by a guy named Ed Stetzer. Ed Stetzer's kind of known as a church growth expert. He's been a pastor and so forth. Right now, he's the director of the Billy Graham Center for Evangelism at Wheaton, uh, and he's a professor at Wheaton College. He wrote a book uh, recently, his most recent book, I guess. Uh, he wrote called Christians in an Age of Outrage or in the age of outrage. And uh, it's a pretty good book, but I gotta say, the price of the book is worth the last two paragraphs. And I just wanna kind of read them for you because it brings together, I think, what Jesus is saying here and kind of sends us out and starts us on our way onward with Jesus through the lost world as we go into this series. So see if this doesn't bring it all together for you. Stetzer says, we are living in an age of outrage. You know, the violence and the outrage of the dinosaur world. <laughs> We still got violence and outrage. Here we go. The world is not as it should be. It is clear that we are in a unique season of antagonism toward the principles that make the gospel the good news. That's true, isn't it? Worse, yet we continue to, to uh, we contribute to this outrage by sometimes responding poorly to the world around us. That's true too, isn't it? But all is not lost. All is not lost. In fact, there is incredible hope for the Christian. Jesus calls us to join our lives with him, follow his lead, repent of our failures, and respond to that outrage with radical grace, winsome love, generous compassion, and prayerful hearts that break with the brokenness of the world. Love like I have loved you, and the world will know you're my disciples. So here it is. Here is the gospel truth. We were once under God's wrath. In fact, the only response from a perfect and holy God was outrage to our sin and sinfulness. But God did not leave us. He drew near to us. He engaged us and saved us by sending Jesus to become the very outrage we could not overcome. I love this part. So now put down this book. <laughs> And go into the age of outrage, leave behind angry nationalism, leave behind political excuses, leave behind uh, unloving tribalism, leave behind prideful Facebook posts and endless arguments. This is the good news that changes us from outraged spectators to grace-filled participants in God's redemptive plan for the world. In fact, you look at that list, that's a pretty good set of things to give up for Lent, by the way. Just, just, just saying. If we honestly and truthfully believe this, it changes everything. That's the, whole, that's the reality. That's the wonder. That's the joy, the hope, and the expectation of being a Christian. Not that we're better than anybody else. We're all under the same boat. We're all under God's wrath. We're all in sin. We've all have to have somebody deal with our sin. So I'm going to call the band out here. And I'm just going to ask you to pray with me. 
Let's pray together. If you need to just pray that prayer, I can't, you can, teach me the mystery of Christ in me. It's, today's a good day to start. You didn't get to do it this morning, maybe. Make sure you do the second one tonight, but just get in that rhythm as we get, come into this season of, of Lent and the Lenten season, but up to Easter, okay? And that's, let me pray for you. You pray to God at what you need to pray as I pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you came to give us this message. This really is good news. We're not alone. You've said that you're, we live together with each other. We're to love each other. That you're in the midst of the jungle, you're creating these pockets of light and hope that are moving around all through the world and they're getting larger and larger all the time because you're doing something that only you can do. You can help us love like you. And the reality is, we know we can't, but we know you can. There's no doubt that we know you can. But what's wondrous is that you want to do it through us. Would you take that message deep into every heart and every soul and every person of our church family here today? And that this, as this goes out over the podcast and the live stream, that you would touch people there too, not because of anything that teachers said today, but because of what you've said through your word today and what you told us at that night when you had the last supper with your disciples. We thank you. We love you. We praise you for doing this in our lives. And it's because you are here with us that we are so thankful and we love you and that we pray in your name every time we pray, Jesus. It is in your name we pray. Amen. Let me just say that we can sing one more song and make this our prayer as we go out of here. Uh, if you're part of the Israel team and you're staying for that uh, meeting, we're going to just meet right over here, okay? Uh, and about five minutes after we're done. But before we get there, let's, let's really take this attitude and this heart and let's pray it to God.